go fully elected, you will risk political paralysis. You will risk a ton of money coming in to elected races being spent between reform-minded folks and the unions, and you risk like never having stability with superintendents. You go all appointed, you risk rubber stamping things and not giving families voice. Welcome to Political Contessa. I'm Jennifer Nassor, and this show is here to support your interests in center-right politics, policy, and breaking news. Listen in and discover how to awaken your inner ideal candidate. And if you're ready, how you can jump in and change the world as a runner or a supporter. Welcome to Political Contessa. If you or a friend have ever considered running or you know a woman who should, I've got something just for you. My quick guide called Secrets from the Campaign Trail. It will show you five signs to tell you you're ready to enter the political arena. To get these tips and learn about all new podcast episodes and ways to get involved, head over to politicalcontessa.com. I grew up going to public schools. Actually, I went to a parochial school from first to fifth grade, and then my dad suddenly died, and we moved from Queens to Long Island. The public schools where I grew up were amazing. So I began my public school journey there. When I was pregnant with my first daughter and living in Boston, I started to think about school. What would we do? Where would she go? What is the process? How do I feel about public versus private school journey for my child? Well, the great part about this was that I live in Boston. And the part of Boston that I live in, there are no public schools. You heard that correct. In a number of neighborhoods in downtown Boston, There is no public elementary, middle, or high school. That takes the public school issue off the table for many of us. My neighborhood does have five amazing elementary schools and a handful of fabulous preschools through kindergarten. But school choice is a real issue and one that you have to think about. So what does school choice mean? It means that parents have the option of where to send their child, public parochial, independent, which is private, homeschool, charter. As a city parent, I did my research into all of the various options. We have some fabulous public elementary schools, but one, you have to drive there. And you may know this, but Boston is a city that was built for horses and carriages. So the whole driving bit is for the birds. Two, your child has to win the lottery. Mm Mm-hmm. Literally, literally win a lottery to get into the school near you. And that school could be 40 minutes away. Independent or private schools, they cost an arm and a leg. Your child does get an amazing education. My daughters go to private school. And in their cases, they were also in school, like in school, in school during 2020-21 school year. There are no teachers unions to contend with. That means that the headmasters and the administration and the board of these schools get to decide about the kids' education and who's teaching. That brings me to charter schools. Charter schools is a topic that I think is great for both women and men, and it really shouldn't matter what your political affiliation is, unless you're a big teachers union fan. So I want to welcome a guest, my good friend, John Connolly. John, mm, he's a man. 
He is also a Democrat. And this is one of those episodes where I'm going to guide you through finding commonality amongst your friends who are politically different from you. This is one of those agreeing moments, not the agree to disagree. These are the times that I want you to look for the hook, the one that connects us. We need more people, whether elected, appointed, just walking around this earth, who want to see the similarities and not always look for the differences. John, welcome. Most importantly, you're my buddy. You grew up in Boston. You're a former Boston city councilor at large, former mayor for the city of Boston, former teacher. Your purpose for today, you are the premier charter school guru, but probably superseding all of this, is that John is dad to three kids who are attending the Boston public schools. Tell me, what have you been doing lately? Well, Jen, thanks for having me on. Um, it's good to good to um, talk to you as always, and and good to do it in this format. Uh, you know, since I've, I left politics about eight years ago, I've been largely involved in education nonprofits. Um, two in particular, the first called sixteen forty seven, um, is an organization that is focused on. Um, really working with schools, teachers, administrators uh, on high impact family engagement. How do you get parents involved at school in um, meaningful ways? Um, and I'm on the board uh, of that organization and I'm a, a co-founder. Uh, second is an organization called School Facts Boston. Uh, that organization works directly with parents and families in the city of Boston um, on trying to empower the family voice on education issues in Boston and, and how can families um, both make sure their voice is heard uh, and take a role as a leading voice uh, when it comes to making decisions uh, and education policy. Uh, in Boston. And that was focused in Boston, but really we hope it will become a model for uh, other cities across uh, the United States. So cool. So how did you end up getting involved in all of that? Well, I think when, you know, I was involved in elected politics for, um, you know, eight years and had been involved in politics, you know, generally for a lifetime, it felt. And uh, when I ran my last race, I really ran a campaign centered on improving city schools. Um, and the piece I really took out of that was that it were it was the families that weren't being heard. Uh, and there was a lot of interest group politics driving um, policy in schools, but it, it were the voices of families that were not being heard, in particular, our poorest families um, in the city, but, but really all families overall. Uh, and I wanted to focus my, my work on how do you uh, engage families at school in a non-political way and just like in terms of families having a good experience at school. And then how do you engage families and their and their political and advocacy voice? Um, uh, and, and so that was really what led me to that work. So interesting. This mostly focused around public schools, charter schools, independent schools. What What's the primary focus? Yeah, so we focus on all families in the city of Boston. So families of school-aged children in the city of Boston, and we try to work with families um, in what we call like a tri-sector manner, which is uh, your traditional public school system, your charter schools, and then your private and parochial schools. So what we sort of um, establish as core principles with the families we work with is um, 
we want you at the table, no matter how you feel on school issues, we think we can get farther when families sit at the same table and talk um, about issues, um, regardless of where they are on them. And so we just ask families that, would you be willing to work with other families whose kids may go to, um, you know, traditional public schools, uh, public charter schools or private or parochial schools. Um, you know, we're the, the one thing we have in common is we're all families raising children in the city of Boston. Oh boy. Do we know about that? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things as a, as a parent in the city that was always mystifying to me was that in my end of the city, there are no public schools. So I love the concept of school choice, but when you don't have a choice because there are no public schools, it kind of cha- is a game changer for you because you either have to move out of the city because it's too expensive to go to one of the private schools or you have to drive your kids to another part of the city. And it, it's so dependent upon the school lottery and whether you could even get into a school near you. I think so, that's one of, one of the um, pieces of sort of the school choice issue, and, and we know it as particular to Boston, but you can look at it really anywhere, is that one of the pieces that's lost in it sometimes is one of the choices, you know, many families want to make is the choice to go to the school closest to where they live. Um, and, and in your case in Boston, it was an impossibility because your neighborhood didn't even have a school. So. Um, yeah. I mean, and, and I think, you know, it's, it's, it becomes a greater issue too. Um, just, you know, as I digress on a little bit of a tangent, but I think it becomes a greater issue because as someone who has run for the mayor of Boston uh, spot, you know, I mean, our city is, I don't want to say that it's segregated, but when we have conversations about equity and equality, um, you know, you cannot advocate legitimately for families to live on one side of the city in Boston because there are no schools for those children. So you end up putting families in a in a very different position where you basically are saying, if you can afford independent schools, you can live over here. And if you can't, you can live on the other sides of the city where there are schools, or you could just chance it that you're not, you know, if you work, how do you drive your kid? I mean, Boston was made for a horse and carriages, right? I mean, it wasn't made for big SUVs and hauling your kids across town um, and, you know, the traffic and all that. So if you're trying to get to work, I think it, it really definitely presents an issue. But I find the school choice thing to be Interesting. And can you just, I mean, one of the things I know you and I have talked about, you know, for a long time and and I have a great interest in is charter schools and how charter schools are different than public schools. Um, and, you know, they're, they're different than, than an independent school. It's not the same thing. Can you just give a little description of the charter school, the charter school movement and um, where, where Boston or Massachusetts is right now? Sure. Well, I, I started at a point of commonality, which is that um, your sort of traditional public schools, or you know, in this specific case, Boston public schools, what they have in common with charter schools is that they are both public schools. Um, and so you really have your sort of traditional public schools and your public charter schools. They're both public schools, but uh, then the differences uh, can begin. So your traditional public schools are administered by the school district, which in the case of Boston is 
going to be the Boston School Department. And typically the town or city you live in is going to be in charge of the public school system for that locality. A charter school typically is its own school district. And so it is one school often, and it is its own school district and how the decisions are made. So a school board is going to make a decision for all of the public schools in a locality. A charter school is going to be able to make the decisions for itself. Um, and so I think there, the idea here is that you can avoid bureaucracy and you know hyper-political decision-making by virtue of having charter schools separated out from traditional school district management. Um, the next piece then is Charter schools are not subject to hiring restrictions around collective bargaining. Um, so uh, they can be union schools, but they're typically non-union and free to hire whatever licensed teachers they, they wish to hire. Next, they have complete control over their curriculum. So they can put whatever curriculum in place where a district is going to be picking its curriculum for a, you know its 100 plus schools or whatever it is. And then finally, the, the other principal district um, distinction is budgeting. And the charter school has complete control over its budget, whereas in a school district, the school itself may not have a ton of control over its budget. That may be determined at the school board level, at the superintendent level. Um, and you get layers of bureaucracy because you have you know, a larger system with multiple schools. The one thing I would note is there are charter operators who operate more than one charter school. And in those cases, that group of charters will function like a district in terms of like, so their decision-making may well apply to the six charter schools in that cluster of charters, but you still see streamlined decision-making typically. And again, autonomy on curriculum, hiring, and budget. Those are, those are the, the, the main differences between charters, public charter schools and traditional public schools. That's awesome. So <laughs> funny, funny, not funny question. How did charter schools do last year during the shutdowns when when lots of public school kids, especially in the city of Boston, were out of school until April, May? How did charter schools fare? So I think we're just starting to see data emerging on this, examining the impact of, you know, the COVID shutdowns on this. But but we do know sort of preliminarily at this point charter schools were typically back to school quicker than large urban school districts. So their kids were back in school learning faster, more akin to what went on in the suburbs in Massachusetts with the public school systems in the suburbs. And we also know that charter schools were, as far as remote learning went, running longer school days from a remote basis and um, typically more academic rigor. And some people will say, well, how do you know that? Well, there has been analysis done on length of time in class, um, replicating a full schedule and sort of um, both uh, homework given and whether or not completion of it was tracked and things like that. I do think it is safe to say that the charters in Boston on the whole, doesn't mean there weren't some Boston public schools doing a really good job on these things, but on the whole, the charters in Boston found a way through the pandemic to make sure that their students had more learning time and more rigor on the whole than, the, than traditional Boston public schools did. I'm going to put you on the spot on this one. Do you, do you think that that has anything to do with teachers unions? And you could punt that to, well, what do you think, Jen? <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I think the unions played a role there um, because they negotiated contracts on, on work terms around remote learning. 
to be expected. And it was pretty clear that charters were hitting bars higher than what most of those agreements looked like throughout the state. But that said, I don't put the blame on the unions there. I really put them on the superintendents, the management of the districts and the school boards who did not push harder to to get a, a better school day or more learning or kids back to school more quickly. You know, the union's only one piece in that. And what we saw in Boston was really just a sort of powerless administration of the schools and administrators of the schools who just didn't fight and just sort of wrote it out and and really had no vision driving at that time. I really put it there. I knew plenty of teachers who were frustrated with not being back earlier. I knew other teachers who didn't think we should and wanted less. And I got that. It was a really difficult time, but I, I really looked to the administrators to lead here and they, and they didn't. And the comparison point, by the way, is not charters to traditional public. It's suburban public to urban public. And why did suburban systems have their kids back uh, far sooner than urban systems? And that's about um, power politics and a failure of leadership in urban areas. That's a phenomenal assessment. And I don't think that that actually had been um, the onus been put on superintendents, administrators and and school boards. And I want to get back to charter schools in a second, but I want to go on that school board thing for a second. So in Massachusetts, we have appointed school boards, right? Not elected school boards, school committees. We, we have um, we have appointed in Boston. We have appointed in Lawrence. We have some similar models like that uh, in Springfield, but by and large, the, the majority are elected um, in towns um, and most other cities. It is elected school boards. Okay. So, which I guess becomes an interesting point, right? So if the suburban areas are doing better, and I mean, Lawrence is a gateway city, and then you have Boston as a major metropolitan city. Do you think that if that was changed and they were elected school boards, that decision-making would be a little bit more thoughtful because then they're they're just as accountable to the voters, whereas the appointed, they're only accountable to the person who appointed them. So I'm conflicted on this one. We ended up with an appointed system in Boston because of the deep rampant corruption in the elected school committee that preceded it. And the decision was made around 1990 in Boston. At that point, you had incredible paralysis in the Boston Public Schools that started with the paralyzed school board that was always infighting and ridiculous stories of, you know, school elected school committee members showing up at schools and, you know, telling principals that they wanted their cousin hired as a janitor and so on. And, you know, not to get rid of this teacher who, you know, wasn't showing up because they were a political patron of a school committee member and, you know, nonsense like that. And, and what preceded that was, the intentional segregation of Boston public schools by the elected school committee. So the elected school committee in Boston has this horrific history as you head into 1990. The Boston public schools are probably at their lowest point and the city votes to switch to an, a mayoral appointed board. And I think in many ways you could look at the Boston public schools and say once they switched to the mayoral appointed board, those schools stabilized, improved, families came back and, and they did pretty well for a while. And then in the past 10 years with that elected school committee, it really has gotten to a point where it's just a sort of rubber stamp, yes, for the superintendent and the mayor. And there isn't any real, real examination of what's going on inside those schools. And I think it makes a lot of people in Boston want an elected school committee back. 
I, I'm always sort of torn because I don't want paralysis. And one thing we see with elected school committees across the country is superintendent tenure goes way down because they they always seem to end up fighting with the superintendents they hire and then firing them. And if you look at urban districts across the country, I think like average superintendent tenure is about two years. So one thing you see in Boston is superintendent tenure far exceeds that. You get superintendents who stay for a while and can leave an imprint and execute a plan, though I think many would rightly argue some of those superintendents have been failures. So like, where do I land on this at the end of the day? What I'd like to see in Boston is a hybrid. I would like to see us elect some members and have others appointed by the mayor so that we could avoid paralysis for a certain by perhaps letting the mayor appoint four and then have three elected and know that we could then elect voices on there who would not be afraid to stand up and call out some of the nonsense we see, not rubber stamp things, um, and really be voices for transparency uh, in how we run our schools. But, you know, it, I, I don't think there's any easy solution here. You go fully elected, you will risk political paralysis. You will risk a ton of money coming in to elected races being spent between reform-minded folks and the unions, and you risk like never having stability with superintendents. You go all appointed, you risk rubber stamping things and not giving families voice. Mm, super interesting. All right. All right. You have me sold. I, I came from New York where it was all elected and I like that, but I did live in a suburban area and, you know, the, it, the with great schools and there were parents that were elected to it and people who really had investment in the in the neighborhood. So definitely a little bit different than the city of Boston. I want to get back on charter schools because I love school choice. As I said earlier, I think that parents should have the right to decide whether they want to send their kid to a traditional public school, a charter school, an independent school, parochial school, or homeschool. I sure as heck do not want to homeschool. I had a little uh, sampling of that back in March to June of 2020, and that was not my favorite time. There was a reason I went to law school and did not get my master's in teaching. I commend the people who like to homeschool. That is not me. But I do, as a parent of kids, do go to independent schools. I love the model because it is autonomy on the school to do pretty much what they want to do. I mean, you know, they do have, they are beholden to a hierarchy and to their own sort of bureaucracy um, that they buy into. However, on the day-to-day, they get to really decide the courses and they really get to make their own decisions um, and have a board of trustees as opposed to a school board. So I'm I'm fascinated by charter schools because I know with the with the pilot programs and charter schools that I have seen around Boston, they do an amazing job. And what they do is they help the families. So it's not just the education that these kids so need, but it's also keeping the kids off the street making sure that the kids have the food that they need to have during the day. It's also giving an option to a lot of families who don't really know where else to go and may be in a failing school district. And I know when I was running for city council, one of the neighborhoods I was in, the the parents, the moms would cry to me and say, if you're elected, can you please help us? Because the toilet that my 13-year-old sits on is made for a two-year-old. My six-year-old has told me about mice running through the classrooms. And the kids are so distracted by everything else going on around them that they don't have the stable learning environment. So when you come to charter schools, 
what's the opposite argument on charter schools and are there caps on it? Uh, what are, are, can anyone go to a charter school or how can you get into one? So typically charter schools have more open admission policies than, you know, within a school district. So, you know, if there, if it's a charter school outside the city of Boston, it usually is open regionally or even larger to even larger groups of people. For charters inside Boston and typically inside cities, um, they're eligible for anyone in that city. And that's usually makes it more open than the traditional schools, which either have geographic assignment, you know, school closest to where you live, or a lottery broken into geographic areas, similar to what Boston has. So uh, by and large, charters are open to more students than um, traditional public schools, not though, you know, more akin to like what a regional vote tech is open, you know, kids from many towns and so on. So they are open to more kids. The arguments against charters really boil down to the main one being that they take money from traditional public schools because the per pupil expenditure follows the student out of the district to the charter when a student enrolls in a charter. And then also arguments that they don't serve all kids because they do not the same ability or requirement to serve all children with special needs as traditional public schools do. And then sometimes an arguments, harsh discipline within charter schools and being, being, you know, har, you know, having harsher discipline policies than traditional schools. I, you mean I think keeping kids accountable to doing things <laughs> like their homework and getting in trouble and maybe getting an F on a test. That would be well, so terrible. You know, so I, it's funny. I've had talks with some union folks, you know, off the record, not things they would they would say on the record necessarily. And but you know, one of the things that was said to me that I, I thought was telling was they understood why parents chose charters over safety reasons. That charters were better able to keep, on the whole, their their uh, kids safe and felt like they could keep their kids safe um, because of suspension policies and just you know sort of stricter, more accountable account accountability focused policies. And I think that is a, a valid thing and a real thing and something you'll hear from a lot of parents uh, around those choices. Now, by the same token, have charters taken it too far at times? Yeah, when you're suspending kindergartners, that's crazy. You know, when you're um, suspending kids because of their hair. I think that's nuts. But when you are uh, have a real discipline policy that goes to weapons and fighting and real accountability over academics, I think it's hard not to see why some families want that instead of um, what they would get from the Boston Public Schools. I'm with you. So, you know, I like to say that as I described you at, in the opening as as a Democrat. Right. And clearly this is a show by a right of center woman. Um, <laughs> but my my motto is always shouldn't we agree to disagree on some things? And and then, you know, as I said earlier, this is one of those shows that I'm not going to disagree with you on anything. I agree with you wholly on all of this. I think we need to give people a choice. And I think it's up to the parents to decide, do you want your kids to be more accountable? You know, no, not on hair. Do you want your kids to be safe at school? Do you, <laughs> right? I mean, I think that there's, there's a certain segment of the, you know, the 
portion of my parenting is their individuality and letting them express themselves. And, you know, if, if Georgia wanted to run outside in a princess dress, you know, and go to the playground when she was three, I let her go with it. Um, and then she had a, a phase of chalking her hair and I just let her go with it. My theory was, well, maybe she won't have tattoos and earrings coming out of her like every single, you know, part of her body when she's older and so far so good. So <laughs> I mean, you know, Jen, I think our schools are deeply politicized. That's throughout the country. And Massachusetts is no, no exception to that. But they shouldn't be. These issues get political quickly, but but shouldn't. And I just it's not a political it's not political. It's it it is a it's just good for our children. And it's something that we should have open as as a uh, when you talk to, to, you know, families of color in Boston and in particular families living in poverty and families uh, for whom English isn't, you know, the primary language um, in the household. Like when you talk to them one-on-one, they are not talking about um, the politics of Democrats, the politics of Republicans, you know, or any side of school politics Um, in Massachusetts. It's deeply divided within the democratic party as well as having the division with Republicans. But um, they talk about in many cases, the same things, that you're going to hear from a, a white suburban parent. And, and sometimes there's differences, but they talk about things like, I want to know my child is safe. I want to know my child is learning. I want to know my child is getting individual attention that um, people appreciate my child for whom you know he or she is. Uh, I want to know that it's not just the basics, that they've got extras like arts and music, uh, sports. And you know when you go through that and you listen, when you say like, what do you want from your school? Like that's what you hear and none of that's Democrat, Republican, right or left. It's about how do we deliver that to families? Um, how do we get school systems to, to work on that and actually keep the politics out of it? And unfortunately, that's not the reality, though. Um, when, once you leave that coffee table talking with that family, there's a school department and a city hall somewhere where interest groups and constituencies are fighting you know, their agendas or fighting for their agendas or against someone else's agenda. In the meantime, it's really just good policy for parents to make that decision. One last question I have for you is, how would someone get on a school board and get more involved in their community? I mean, clearly you don't have to be a parent, right? What it, What do you think is the best process for someone to get involved in their local school board? Yeah. I mean, so if you look at Boston, where we're Merrill appointed, you have to apply and there's a screening committee and uh, and so on. And, and typically, um, if you have been active and involved in these issues, that will, you know, give you some credibility um, in that application process. So I think being involved in schools is 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 a precursor, and I think it's really good. I don't, it's not necessarily the case, but it's really good to have kids in the system that you're running to represent and really learning it inside out. On that elected side, it can really be anybody running. What I just hope and encourage is that it's people who don't come with a ready-made ideology, whether they are an ed reformer or a staunchly pro-union individual, that doesn't matter to me, um, come with a willingness to listen to all families and seek out all families and listen to what they want and, and proceed from there. I think that is a phenomenal point to end on because I have to say, I think if all of our politicians everyone that we have in elected office right now actually listen to what you just said about coming to the table 
with, you know, open an open mind um, and an open heart and actually wanting to learn something new instead of preconceived notions, we as a country might be in a much different spot than we are today. Um, so I think that you just became my favorite philosopher. Uh, (laughs) It's also why why we need to teach civics in school. (laughs) It is absolutely why we need to teach civics. Exactly. Well, John Connolly, thank you so much for being with me today. And if anyone wanted to follow what you do, is there a place that they can go find your organizations or find you? Sure. They can follow me on Twitter at John R. Connolly, C-O-N-N-O-L-L-Y. They can follow School Facts Boston on Twitter at School Facts Boss, B-O-S. Uh, and they can go to schoolfactsboston.org to check out um, our website and on Facebook as well. That is awesome. Thank you, John. Have a wonderful day. Thanks, Jen. Uh, Great to be here. It was so nice to have my friend John Connolly on the show today. I have to say, you know, it's those friendships you make along the way. John and I, as we were discussing, have known each other for quite some time. We have known each other since I think my oldest was just a tiny little thing, maybe was even in her stroller. We go back quite a ways. And one of the things in politics that I just always really found fascinating is that over the years, friendships can grow deeper. And even though there are political divides, there's some sort of commonality. And there's always something you can find with someone who may not always have the same ideals as you. I helped on John's first run for city council many years ago. I helped on his run for mayor of Boston. He was a fabulous advisor to me when I was running, and he's always a go-to for me. I think having those relationships and appreciating those relationships and fostering them is something that we all need to do a little bit more of. Maybe if we did give a little bit more credence to having friends that have different perspectives than us on some things and then agree on topics that we agree on, maybe the world would be a different place. Maybe we could end the polarization Maybe we could actually be okay sharing our difference of ideology and appreciating the things that we do have in common. Again, I'd like to thank my friend, John Connolly, for being with me today. That was a wonderful show. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to Political Contessa. For all the ways to listen and to get the inside scoop on what's happening in center-right politics for women like us, head over to politicalcontessa.com. 